people want to know is, well, how do you attack switching? I know this, that teams have never beaten a team that switches a bunch by running plays to attack switches. And I think the way that you have to attack switches is that your guys have to understand it's not about standing and watching. It's about, can you create an overreaction through a little bit more ball movement, player movement, but also understanding too, how you don't allow the defense to switch back. Dan Krikorian, and I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Slapping Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome University of Wyoming head coach, Jeff Linder. Coach Linder is here today to discuss how great teams re-space and manipulate spacing, flattening and stretching defenses, and we talk the ins and outs of Barkley drives and attacking switching during the always fun start, sub, or sit. Coaches, one of the best ways to help support what we do is by becoming a member of SG+. We now have coaches and staffs from over 40 different countries who are happy to call members, and they get access to SGTV's over 500 detailed breakdown video library by both ourselves and coaches like Stan Van Gundy, Ryan Pannone, Martin Schiller, Josh Schertz, and many more, as well as the weekly deep dive newsletter, access to a private coaching community, and much more. For more information, email us at info at slappingglass.com or visit slappingglass.com to sign up today. Thanks for the support. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Jeff Linder. Coach, thanks for taking some time on your day off and chatting with us. We're really excited to talk to you. No, thanks, guys. Good being here and appreciate what you guys do. Appreciate that. Coach, Coach, we'd like to dive in right away on the court with you. And we'll start with a quote that we talked about before, but is attributed to you about spacing. And then we'll kind of dive in afterwards. But the quote is, good coaches teach spacing. Great coaches teach re-spacing. Elite coaches teach manipulating spacing. Well, I mean, I'm not doing anything that previous coaches haven't done. I mean, whether that's back in the day with Bobby Knight and motion offense, but the game's evolved. I mean, ultimately, spacing is the most important thing from an offensive standpoint. Whether or not you know you're a ball screen team, whether you're a team that throws the ball in the post. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways, but as the game's evolved from a ball screen standpoint. You know, it's easy to put X's on the floor and say, okay, you need to get to the corners. You need to be in the slots. I mean, based off the different ways that, you know, you can get to, you know, a ball screen and what that spacing is in the ball screen, which ultimately there's probably about six, to seven different ways, you know, based off of having five guys on the floor and how you want to put the people where they need to be. But, you know, it's easy to teach spacing, you know, then the ability to re-space, to be able to play behind the ball, you know, the ability to you know, know when to cut, know when to stay. And then, you know, the ability to, which I think coaches are getting better now, but in terms of, you know, really being able to identify coverages, you know, and and not just as a coach, but your players. Because I don't think, you know, you can't beat the really good teams by just coming down and saying, okay, teams blitzing the ball screen, they're icing the ball screen, and we're just going to run set plays all night long. I mean, that just doesn't work. And so can you teach your guys to be able to identify the coverages in real time and not just out of a timeout. And I think that's where, you know, for me, I'm 
you know, Europe's been a huge influence on me for a long time and not just, you know, recently, but, you know, the last time I've been studying Europe for probably about the last 15 years. And I think that's the one thing that they do, knowing that the difference between the, you know, the European and college game and the NBA is that in the NBA, it's really easy to hit that short roll when those, you know, two defenders on the weak side are not allowed to cross the lane line. It's a completely different game than what we play at the college level and at the international level. So when there's not as much space and when that, you know, you're trying to operate in tight spaces, I mean, you really have to learn how to manipulate spaces and understanding how can you create a roll situation? How can you create a short roll situation? And How can you put your players in the best position to create those advantages? I think that's the one thing that we spend a lot of time on. It's not just five on no. I mean, if anyone comes and watches one of our practices, I mean, 90% of what we do is five on five. And that's why I think in terms of understanding how to manipulate space, you have to play five on five. It's easy to go two on two and three on three and, and making it look real easy. But when you add a fourth or fifth defender and when you're playing against you know, a San Diego state or an Arizona, when you're playing against that size and length and athleticism in a small area, in a confined space, you better be able to understand how to move those tags and yet be able to find ways to create space. And I think that's ultimately for me and my job is to find ways to create that space, teach my guys how to you know, play in that space. And then, you know, also too, I think the synergy amongst the ball handler and the screener, I think that's the one thing probably I think in America that's not taught enough in terms of, you know, the screeners understanding the coverages and the screener understanding what the defender on the ball is doing. And so that, because they play just a big of a part in creating the advantage than does the ball handler. And I think a lot of times in America, it's just about running ball screen plays and not teaching guys how to play. Coach, a ton of stuff to, I guess, dive in on here with you. My first question goes to spacing around a pick and roll like you talked about but here in preseason how many pick and roll locations you teach the guys about where a ball screen may or may not occur within say your flow on the floor middle third out of third slot all those sorts of things and then how you then teach the spacing in relation to that to your guys so they have an understanding of wherever that ball screen occurs here's how we're going to space around it yeah no and that's a good question i mean i think for us first i mean just regardless of what you're doing i mean Can you recognize is the corner empty or is the corner filled? And then from there, you know, the location of the ball and what the coverage is, is going to determine kind of where we want the ball to be, where we want the screen to be set. But really it just, it's simple as, is the corner empty? Is the corner filled? And then what's the coverage and knowing that, okay, now we're playing a team, which in the college, for some reason, teams don't blitz as much anymore or hard show, but based off of, you know, if a team's icing, you know, whether a team's in a a lateral, a drop. And so for us, I mean, we're going to spend some time five on no in terms of attacking coverages. I think there's probably about five or six different coverages that, you know, we probably will see. I think there's some we'll see more than others, but just having our guys understand, you know, what those reads are, are going to be when we're playing a team that ices, you know, whether we play a team that's dropping and and also, too, fitting that to our personnel. But I do think understanding where the ball's at on the floor, trying to stay away, especially on corner field situations, trying to stay away where that ball's getting below you know, the 45 mark. For us, that would be if you took a line from the elbow to half court, you know, the sideline and, and where the half court line meet. And so just trying to 
you know, really understand what they're trying to do. And then ultimately, can we put two on the ball? I mean, it's pointless to run a lot of ball screens if you can't put two on the ball. And based off your personnel, like last year, where my teams in the past, my you know four years at Northern Colorado, my first year at Wyoming, we were a team that ball screened as much as anybody in the country when you watch us on film and look at some of the numbers. But last year, knowing that my personnel changed and I had a guy like Hunter Maldonado who had six foot six foot seven at the point, who's a decent three-point shooter, but he's not a great three-point shooter and understanding what teams pick up points were going to be, understanding teams were going to go you know under on a lot of ball screens in which we know what we want to do versus unders. But if I'm sitting there and trying to fight in those tight spaces and tight windows, and so that's where for him, it was better off trying to get him into you know, dribble downs or, you know, as I hear the term Barclays used, you know, to create those advantages for him. Cause ultimately you got to put two on the ball and you got to find a way to get a paint touch or you got to create a rotation. And if you can't do that by setting ball screens, then you're just wasting time. And I think that's where you see a lot of teams where they just, they run ball screens because they think that's what they need to do. When in reality, when you look at some of the analytics of the NBA overseas where, you know, ball screens is from terms of a points per possession efficiency standpoint, is not necessarily the best offense. And I think that's where, you know, sometimes people look at the NBA and, and the five out and what they do. And I think there is some value in, in what those guys do X and O wise in the NBA is, is at a really, really high level, but it's such a completely different game. And so I just think for high school, college coaches, yeah, there's some things you can get from the NBA from, you know, some ATOs, some side OBs, but where you really need to find the guys that really know how to manipulate space is that you have to go to Europe. Coach. I'd like to follow up and make sure I'm understanding right, but the ball screen coverage will also kind of dictate where you want the ball to be or where you want the screen to occur. Am I understanding you correct? If they're in a hedge, are you going to look to maybe play ball screens from this part of the court rather than these parts? And is that how you'll obviously then look to manipulate the space by just changing the location of the ball screens? That's correct. And just, yeah, I mean, if a team's blitzing, you know, now, depending on how you want to attack the blitz, whether you know you want the ball handler, which I think within the flow of the game, you know, whether you're going to attack the hip, attacking the single side, or you're going to attack the hip going to the double side. Now, are you going to play off? We'd say the spray, you're going to attack, shorten the pass to the next closest guy, spray it. Now you're looking spray, roll, spray, skip, spray, kick. Just understanding that, okay, now when teams say they want to blitz, that, you know, that synergy amongst the screener and the ball handler, I mean, he has to know the screener that they're blitzing the ball screen. So he can't run up into a drag or to a ball screen when the guard's not ready to attack. And, you know, the ball handler has the ball in his outside sideline hand. And now you got a six foot 11 guy, you know, jumping into you. And and now you got to get that ball to your inside hand. Now it makes it really hard to you know, attack that coverage. And I do think, you know, for us, you know, when we say manipulating space is that we're always trying to flatten the defense and we're always trying to stretch the defense. And that's whether you're, you know, in a lateral or a drop, really trying to flatten the defense. Cause you know, at the level that we're at in the mountain West is that, you know, if you sit there and you just stay in the slot, you know, slot wing corner, and I'm attacking a two side, I mean, you're just going to be navigating into a lot of hand help and you're not going to be able to you know, get that one extra dribble that's going to allow the screener's defender and then the guy behind the ball to stay in a tag or help for one extra dribble. And so can you flatten the defense to put more pressure on the defense? Now, can you stretch the defense based off of whether they're trying to show, you know, whether in the high show or high lateral to where now maybe, you know, you can attack the one side, you can play off the short roll and then put them in a bind behind the ball in a three-on-two situation. But, you know, I think especially at the college level where you see so many teams just where the three-point line is at, and just for many teams, for most teams, they try to play the pack. 
is that, you know, can you really try to flatten that defensive coverage and can you really try to stretch it? You know, I think the mistake you see a lot of coaches make is that they see the NBA and they see them get, you know, in the slots, you know, high and wide and get in the corners. And now they're coming off those ball screens and they can still get paint touches. Well, yeah, they can get paint touches because they can't come across that lane line. We're in college. I mean, good luck playing against Texas Tech or some of these other teams where you can have five guys on one side of the floor. Right. Coach, I want to go back. I guess I like that flatten the defense versus stretching it. But you mentioned a couple of times now building the synergy between the ball handler and the screener. How are you building that synergy? Is it two on O? Is it two on two? I mean, you mentioned you play a ton of five on five, but how, when you look at the ball handler and the screener, the ways that you're developing that synergy for the guys? Well, I think it's a combination of one. Yeah. Some of the stuff that we do pre-practice or in the off season in terms of individual work, I think the one thing that guards really struggle with is setting up the ball screen. You know, we always say our ball handler, we don't want his feet to mirror the feet of his defender. And I think if you really watch film and you watch guys, I mean, they just allow their defender's feet to mirror their feet. And so it's easy to defeat the ball screen. And so can we do a good job of teaching a setup? So those things we do, you know, in terms of individual work, but then, you know, whether that's five on O attacking coverages, like we talked about, and then, you know, the amount of reps five on five. And so for us in the off season, whether in practice, I mean, we're trying to get 90 to 120 reps of five on five every practice. And so now, you know, over the course of, a workout. And for us, where we're, you know, setting a lot of ball screens, probably two or three a possession, we're probably setting over 200 to 300 ball screens a possession. And so within those reps, and you compound that over all the workouts that we can do in the summer, the fall and the, and the season, that's how, you know, my guards and my bigs, and that's how we become a really efficient ball screen team is because we have so many reps of five on five. And then I'm crazy in a lot of ways, but, you know, for me, like I said, Europe is huge for me. And, you know, I got a ball screen edit that basically is about a thousand clips that basically breaks down every coverage and how to attack that coverage. And so my post player is one of the best post players in the country, Graham Ike, he can come in and we can go through, hey, this is what we want to look to do on these blitzes here. Look at the role, look at the angle of the role. So I have this database of clips that not just my guards, which I think a lot of times that's everybody thinks pick and roll and they think it's just the guards, but the guards and the bigs understanding that, hey, this is how we're going to attack this coverage. And, and so they can see that visually. And so that's really how we go about teaching it. I'd like to just follow up. I think it sounds simple on its face. If you could elaborate more on when you teach the guards not to mirror the feet of their defenders. If you watch film, I mean, you can see, I mean, if, the defender's toes and the, the ball handler's toes are facing one another. I mean, it's really easy for a guy to push up and defeat the ball screen where if I can get him to move one direction, whether that's using my feet, using my eyes, using the ball to get him to change his feet, whether that's, you know, taking a hard dribble to, you know, one direction, the other, knowing that we're coming back one other way. But I do think that's the thing you see a lot of, especially when you're trying to you know, go against and you're trying to beat better teams that might have more athletic players. You, know, you got to get them moving one direction. You got to get them to react in order to try to create that advantage. And then, as I said, the number one goal for us, you know, my screener, is you've got to force that guy over the screen, put two on the ball. And then from there, you know, we'll do what we need to do. But you can't put two on the ball if you can't set up that screen. I think that's the thing you see a lot. And that's the thing, like, especially with our new guys in the program, not just freshmen, but transfers is just letting them understanding, showing them on film, like, look, you're not setting up the screen. And especially as guys get a little bit tired, they just want to come off, you know, unless you're John Moran or somebody that's just an elite level athlete. I mean, it's hard to play that way at this level. Coach, if I could just stay on this 
one of the harder things to teach, you know, the, you talk about the ball handler not mirroring the feet, but then the big understanding the angle to set a screen so that the guard can't go under. You mentioned like you do not want the under. And so I guess working on as they're approaching the screen, you know, how they stop their feet, where they stop, where they angle themselves so that you force that over depending on where you are on the floor. And it goes back to, I mean, what's the coverage? I mean, if they're blitzing a ball screen, yeah, we already know that by us getting to the screen, we're going to put two on the ball. So now based off of what that spacing situation is and based off where that ball screen is being set, are you getting out of that screen, you know, really quick or now are you opening up? Cause now, I mean, maybe we're attacking, you know, the one side where we got a double tag behind the ball or now we want to open up cause we're attacking you on the short roll. So now as opposed to where if maybe the other team was in a lateral or a drop, but we want that screener to get off that screen as quick as possible and put pressure on the rim. Well, knowing now that we're trying to attack you more off that short roll, you know, you got to open up as you set the screen so you can see the ball quicker. And then now you can see where they're helping from, whether they're helping from, you know, from the high spot, whether they're helping from the low spot, where then now, you know, short roll, we got corner cut, short roll, corner kick, short roll. Now the high guy drops to take away the corner skip. And now we got to make the pass to the wing kick. And so just getting guys to understand that if they're switching the screen, you know, whether or not you want to twist the screen at the last second, you know, knowing that the ball handler and screener knows that whether you want to set it lower at a lower angle, you know, to where you create that lower angle roll. And then now if teams are trying to play under, I mean, whether you want to set the screen flatter. And so it just goes back to really making sure those guys understand. And he said, you know, and we don't need a million different ways, but they need to know that, you know, they have, you know, two or three solutions to what the problem is going to be. And I just think that's what you don't see. I mean, bigs just can't identify. And if you're not playing five on five and especially two playing five on five, and then once the initial play breaks down and now you're trying to keep your flow and trying to play in space, is now can you understand those situations in a real time? And I think that's where, you know, I have a lot of coaches ask me, how do you keep that flow? How do you get to the next action? As a coach, you have to give up some control that way. But if you're not playing five on five a bunch and you're just running sets, you're not going to be able to figure that out. And I think as the season goes on, especially, you know, when you play against the good teams and the good coaches, you get to conference play, you get to postseason it's hard to beat teams running set plays every time down the floor. And so now once that initial, maybe you're trying to create that advantage by flattening the San Diego state or trying to stretch a team out. Well, now you got to find a way to play. And then from that, does your big understand like, Hey, am I going to go set a ball screen? Am I just going to flash the space? And now we're just going to play off the hot play off the splits. And so if you're not playing a lot of reps at five on five, I mean, it's just going to have a hard time figuring that out. We've mentioned it a couple of times. I would like to circle back to the conversation about flattening and stretching space in the defense. And you mentioned as well about your affinity for European basketball, which you're on the right podcast for that <laughs> here with me and Pat. One of the things and the things that you know we look at a lot and that we love about the European game is how they manipulate space on the backside of a pick and roll or wherever that is via either exchanges or cutting actions or screening actions on that backside. And so are there things that you maybe look at that works at the college level when it comes to manipulating space via you know some type of cutting, screening, spacing action on that backside? I think it comes down to where, you know, when you don't have Marto Huertas from Tenerife operating in a ball screen and some of the guys in Europe are as good as, and I spent time last summer 
over in Tenerife during training camp, hanging out with Chus and those guys and just really appreciating what they've done for a long time over there. And I think the thing that they do is they do make it easy for the guard to realize that what their reads are going to be and creating clean reads. I think sometimes where you can almost move too much behind the ball. I think initially, if you're going to run a set to maybe manipulate that low tag, that high tag, and now Europe, you know, I think, you know, they play off that, you know, that double side tag a lot where they're just attacking the single side and you got that low and high tag. And I think in college, unless you have, you know, those type of players and you have that shooting built around I mean, it's really hard, I think, to really try to play off that short role all the time at the college level. But I do know that, you know, with those guys where they'll might manipulate popping a guy up that you know that you're going to try to deny, knowing that you're going to take away the high tag. And now the clean read is, okay, the, the, the low tag. So you're just reading corner and you know now because they're going to deny out that guy popping, that four man popping out to the, the 45 is that now you created that window for the short roll because you know that that tag is only going to be coming from the low side. And so how they manipulate the double tag is what Europe has really figured out. But now if you really have watched Europe over the last probably, I would say this last season, then in the Euro Cup this summer, and then start watching some of the early preseason stuff over in Europe is that you know, you're starting to see a lot more single side tags, especially operating in the middle third of the floor and kind of creating some of what we'd call short action where you know, you're looping those guys under to the short corner, creating some overloads. But you're starting to see, I think, a lot more of that and not necessarily to just rolling to create that, you know, snap or pass back to the backside, but just then to create some of those popping the big to the next action, you know, getting that big late. And so I think you're starting to see, even though it's always existed, but, you know, I think a lot of times too, where people think, you know, it's single side tags and they're playing off the, you know, you see some guys trying to set ball screens at like the free throw line extended wing spot. But if you're, you know, even if you're setting screens at the 45, you better be flattening that defense out if you're attacking that, you know, that two side with the single side tag behind the ball. Cause if not, like you're not going to create any advantage because you're going to be running into a defender at the elbow. So that's where you got to be able to find ways to flatten that defense out to get that one extra dribble. But I think in Europe, in terms of now, in terms of where, you know, setting those ball screens for those single side tags in between the slots and just understanding how to really play out of that, you start to see that a lot more. My follow-up then is spending time over there, knowing these things that they're running, and then now thinking, I guess, back to the college game and your team and how that, I guess, enters your mind as to maybe you don't have the guard play to do all the things that Huertas does, but you do have the ability to kind of use some of those actions and trying to teach college-level players how those things can help and work within the flow of your offense. Well, I mean, that's where it just goes back to playing five on five. And I think, you know, what you've seen too in Europe is that you know, they used to have all these fancy ball screen plays where it was all this movement and there was, you know, 10 seconds of guys just moving and passing the ball. And I think what they've realized too now is that how many ball screens can you get to in 24 seconds? I mean, I think that's the real advantage. Okay, now can you get to a ball screen in the first six seconds of the shot clock? And then from there, by creating the advantage or not creating the advantage, I mean, how quickly and how many ball screens can you set in 24 seconds? So I think that a lot of times, yeah, it's cute to run all the, like, I don't need to run a bunch of cute plays if my guys know how to set the screen and create the advantage. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, it's great to pass the ball around a bunch and there's times for that, but you're also just creating more chances to turn the ball over, especially when you're playing against, you know, a Houston, you're playing against a set in Arizona, you're playing against an athletic, long athletic teams are not letting you just pass the ball around. And so for me, if my guys are good enough in terms of being able to create the advantage, like why am I going to complicate things? And I think sometimes that's the, 
the biggest issue is you got all these plays when in reality, I mean, if you can just teach them how to play in space and how to really set the screen and understand the coverages, I mean, you don't need a ton of different plays. But sometimes I guess as a coach, it looks it looks cute, looks good, looks like you're a really good coach because you can pass the ball six or seven times and move guys around. And then lo and behold, I mean, you don't get anything from it. Now you're battling a shorter shot clock. We're excited to partner with one of our favorite new analytics platforms, Hoopsalytics, a high-powered, affordable, and easy-to-use video and analytics system for coaches of all levels at a fraction of the price of some of the other platforms available. Unlike other systems, Hoopsalytics lets you create fully customizable events and sets and analyzes them for you through video link stats, interactive shot charts, and other tools. Zero programming is required. For a free trial and to receive a 25% discount on the product, visit hoopsalytics.com slash glass. That's hoopsalytics.com slash glass. And now back to our conversation. Just maybe a touch off the beaten track here, but still within the same conversation. Throughout the NBA, Europe as well, obviously the ball screen very prevalent and then the spacing around it. But then also too, I, I guess a cousin of the ball screen is playing off of handoffs or gets and things like that. And the, you know, pass it to a big and chase after it and kind of play through similar reads off of a handoff. How much do you look at that as well and the spacing potentially around those kinds of handoff type actions? I think it depends on who you have handing the ball off. You know, I think handoffs are a little bit overrated in terms of just handing the ball off. But if you have a guy like Graham E.K. for me, who has Kawhi Leonard sized hands and who can just with one hand, you'll take one dribble and make a quick pitch. I think the quick pitch is way more effective than just the DHOs. Now, you know, I think, you know, the DHOs, it's the same thing. I mean, if you can create an over because a team's trying to blow it up now, understanding if a team's going under and it's like a ball screen. I mean, are you going to turn around? Or are you going to rescreen? If the team tries to blow it up and you're able to pick that ball up over the top and we'd call it like an Olay action, you know, like a bullfighter, where that guy who came off comes right back to where now you can create the advantage. But I think in terms of just if you don't really teach the DHO where, you know, you're really trying to get into it quick and so you can get underneath that defender and not letting them just get under. And I think a lot of times guys just hand off to hand off and really no advantages are created where if you can teach that quick one dribble pitch, but you know, there's a lot of guys that, you know, they can't do it. And luckily I have a guy that can, but and I think there's value too in terms of, you know, to be able to throw it to a big, whether he flashes to space, whether he's trailing the play and to where, you know, you give that guard the option of whether he wants to sprint off, you know, to a get or if he wants to go and get to a split action. I do think where you can mix some of that up to where it's just not, like I said, ball screen, ball screen, ball screen, because eventually at the end of the day, I said from a, an efficiency standpoint, unless you got really good players and if you have a guard, and I think that's the other trick. And, you know, luckily for, I can recruit my guys and you know, high school guys, most guys can't recruit their guys is that, you know, also too, I mean, the pickup point really helps to set ball screens. And that's the thing about Europe, which, you know, maybe might be a little bit different than college where there is some teams in college where they have a higher pickup point where in college, you know, the pickup point is pretty low. I mean, it's probably heels on the three point line, 20 foot line, but Europe, I mean, the pickup point's really high. I mean, it's full court half court. So now, you know, you can create a lot more advantages just because of the pickup point. And I think that's something as you go into a game as a coach is that you realize, okay, where are their pickup points at? And then based off of where the pickup points, you know, can you take advantage of those pickup points? 
zooming back out. I mean, we'll be talking about manipulating space and all these things that you can do. But just going back, I guess, to the simplicity of, you know, preseason right now for a lot of coaches and trying to really harp on the culture of their offense of getting to space, free spacing, and then obviously the higher level of down the road, manipulating space. I guess these first few weeks, I mean, what are things that you and your staff are just finding yourselves potentially harping on or always bringing up to players about getting to that good spacing, especially early in the season? Yeah, I mean, and I think for each team, it's different in terms of you know playing to your strengths and playing to your personnel and and what works and what doesn't work. I mean, I think in terms of some of maybe the spacing situations that we wanted to get to maybe last year, I mean, there's some different spacing situations that maybe with this team and our personnel that we're working on right now. And so those are some of the things that I think, you know, first year I got to identify is that, you know, what's your personnel and what can they do and how can they create the advantage? I mean, ultimately that's what it boils down to is how do you create the advantage? Are you creating advantages by knowing that, you know, for me, I just, at the college level and probably even any level of basketball is that there's probably one or two guys on every team that's maybe pretty good at getting through a ball screen and defeating a ball screen where, you know, if, if I can find your third or fourth defender and I can force him to play on my best offensive player, and if I need to hunt switches that way, which I thought, you know, watching, you know, the Euro Cup, I mean, you know, Serbia does a really good job of that. Montenegro does a really good job of that. You know, in terms of Burrospor, I thought over the course of the year, you know, lost in the Euro Cup finals, I thought Burrospor did a really good job as the season went along of, of really trying to create switches to get, you know, the, the other team's third or fourth defender onto their guard, which, you know, a lot of times you get another team's third or fourth defender, their three man or their four man on the ball. I mean, good luck trying to get through screens. And I think that's where, you know, also the five on five piece comes into it, where for me, when you're playing that many possessions of five on five and not just from an offensive standpoint, but a defensive standpoint, because there's also a defensive spacing component to basketball and the really good teams defensively know how to space behind the ball. And so for me, when we're playing 90 to 120 possessions, my guys who are normally behind the ball and ball screen coverage, those guys are getting that many reps playing behind the ball, knowing that in a game, very rarely are they really going to be defending the ball where my ones and twos know that, you know, when they're having to navigate 200 ball screens of practice, they figure out quickly and the screeners defender in terms of how we need to uh, you know, attack the ball on the ball and our ball screen defense on the ball, as opposed to our ball screen defense behind the ball. And I think sometimes coaches spend too much time and you know equal opportunity in terms of the number of reps that guys are getting defensively when in reality you know those threes and fours for the most part are always going to be behind the ball so can you be really good behind the ball in coverage whether that's getting to you know those you know back behind the ball to the double side tag and so i think that's where you know for me like i said i keep harping on five on five but that's where you know basketball's played five on five Coach, on that note, harping on five on five, my question is just how you view teaching in five on five and in terms of maybe balancing the learning and the competition where you're not overstopping and are trying to teach too much, but also the guys aren't getting so competitive that they lose focus on what you're trying to work on or accomplish. I think first, I mean, in terms of why I believe in five on five so much is the fact that you know, I think, you know, the players that we get as growing up, they don't play as much five on five anymore. Back when we grew up, I mean, that's what you did was you played five on five. And nowadays, I mean, it's just, there's not as much five on five being played. And I think also too, when you look at the last two years, three years with the pandemic and for two years, especially these guys that are coming up, like for me and, and these high school kids is that 
some of these guys had, you know, two years where they really haven't been in a gym or been able to play five on five. And so I think you have to make up for those lost reps of teaching guys and how to play five on five and not just going and playing, not to say, I mean, there's some AU coaches and teams that do a really good job. And there's some that not just like high school teams, college teams, pro teams. But I just think that you got to make up for the time that where they haven't been playing five on five. And I do think, you know, for us, and I think nowadays, I mean, kids are, you know, and for most part, most people are visual learners. And so that's where video comes into play, you know, watching a lot of video, not necessarily as a team all the time, but individually with players, with their individual coaches, and then not stopping and and having a lecture every time down the floor and, and allowing them to kind of figure things out. And so whether we're playing half full, half full, full, you know, every time that we stop play, not necessarily me just having to jump in when if I need to, I do, but it's going to be quick. But letting those guys huddle for 15 or 20 seconds to figure out, hey, what just happened? Hey, what do we need to do next? And kind of giving them some ownership in that. But you know, as long as you kind of give them the guidelines, but as a coach, you have to give up a little bit of freedom. Now you can kind of give them some parameters, give them some triggers of what you want to do. But then ultimately, if we're talking about how to play in space, you got to let them try to figure out how to play in space. And maybe once in a while, you might stop and say, hey, look, look where the ball's at. Look what's going on. Like, hey, look, you're in the slot right there. You're a 25% three-point shooter, man. You got to get your ass to the dunk spot and flat the defense out. If not, your man's just standing right there. And so just those little things within the flow of five on five and not just stopping it just to stop it, but letting them just try to figure it out. Coach, this has been awesome so far. We want to kind of transition now into a segment that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. And so just a a fun little segment we like to play here on the show where we'll give you three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and then sit one, and then we can discuss your answers from there. So coach, if you're ready, we can hop on into this first question. Good to go. All right. Sounds good. Coach, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you a question about a Barkley drive here <laughs> on the podcast. So this first start sober sit has to do with Barkley or bully drives or dribble downs, whatever you want to call it, and something that you guys obviously have done well. But this has to do with tough parts to teach when it comes to teaching that action to players in your team. So the start would be here the most difficult thing for you to teach when doing this. The start sober sit, the player with the ball not offensive fouling as they back down. The second option is the other four players understanding how to play in the space, get to spacing concepts around that drive once it starts to occur. And the third option is teaching that player how to pass out of the Barkley drive with a live dribble. Well, first and foremost, start would be offensive fouls because I saw that more guys flop in the history of college basketball. My two guys that were in probably more dribble downs, Barclays than any two players in the history of college basketball last season. I mean, probably 90% of our offense was dribble downs or Barclays. And it's luckily they've changed the rule to where now it flops a technical foul. And that's the beauty of Europe. And, you know, they allow the physicality and they just don't allow guys just to flop around like fish. And that was hard to swallow. It's probably why I got ejected from a game and (laughs) it was a tough pill to swallow. But I do think there's an art to not fouling and not dropping your shoulder, but that would definitely be the start in terms of just you know, we can't control that in terms of what the officials decide to call. In terms of subbing, I think probably just the passing out and how you're going to attack, you know, the different coverages that you're going to see, whether or not they're going to double, you know, from the pass, from the perimeter, are they going to double from the low side? They're going to double from the high side. And then I think, you know, which kind of goes hand in hand, but, you know, sit the spacing. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, when you get to a dribble down situation, I mean, it's just like a corner empty ball screen. I mean, there's nobody in the corner. So, I mean, you're going to space it with four guys out. 
or are you going to space it with three out? And then from there, you know, understanding is just like a ball screen coverage. And I think for us, the fact that we were, I mean, and no exaggeration, I mean, Hunter Maldonado was in 30 dribble downs a game, you know, Graham E.K. between post-ups and dribble downs, which, you know, he's skilled enough at the five spot where I put him in a lot of dribble downs. Because I think you know, sometimes late games, if you don't have a post player that can dribble down, it's hard to give him the ball to post if you got a guy that can score down there. So if you have the ability to get him into a dribble down or allow him to pop and get to a dribble down, it makes things easier to get, you know, your player like him into those situations. But I do you think that you know people always ask I me mean, because I said people watch this play and you know they think that we do all these things and we really don't drill a lot of it I mean I got a guy in Hunter Maldonado who's just naturally really good at it really understands how to get the depth I mean I think that's the biggest thing is that you know when you watch guys try to do it is that they don't understand that you know you got to create that space you know between the ball and that first line of defense you know which that first line of defense is usually going to be that next closest perimeter defender who's usually at the elbow area and so There'll be times where I think Maldonado's just going to dribble the ball out of bounds, you know, but, you know, for him, I mean, he's just driving that ball down to where now where the defender can be a lot more, you know, physical and aggressive with his forearm in that area is that now when those guys are trying to push him up the floor, if he's got more depth, now he's coming through the lane line, you know, above the block or the first hash, as opposed to where you see so many guys, they just dribble down and they have no space between them and the first line defense. And now they're coming through the lane line at the second hash and you're bringing the hand help into the equation and you're really not, you know, creating an advantage. And I think, you know, that that's the beauty of the dribble down is that if you have a guy that's good enough, I mean, as I went back to the beginning, I mean, my job offensively is to figure out a way to create a paint touch or create a rotation. And I was just very fortunate to have two guys where, you know, more times than not, I mean, they're good enough to go score 20 or 25 if you don't double them. And then now if you want to start doubling them based off of where you want to double from, we're going to have a solution. So it really, it evolved into an offense of its own based off of just us doing it and then just trying to figure out how we're going to attack you. Coach, love to hear you talk about this. A lot of areas to ask a follow-up here, but I think more so than asking a follow-up on your answer, I'd love to ask you about the philosophy because I think when maybe people see the dribble down of the Barkley, obviously it's a way to get the ball towards the paint to score for that player. But I have to imagine you think a lot about how it sets up three-point opportunities with someone's feet set to step into a three or an extra pass to the corner and how that action can really help lead to higher quality three-point attempts within your offense. Yeah, the misnomer is that people think everybody's analytic now that, you know, the post up or the dribble down, I mean, it's just a low efficiency shot. And, you know, for me, I mean, it's, you can still create a paint touch. You can still force the defense to have to turn and look and try to find the ball. And then from that, I mean, it's an odd angle in terms of now and where you're trying to create screening actions, not just for a three, or you're trying to find ways like for us, you know, whether it's a lob, a three, or maybe Graham E.K. getting a post touch based off of how you're guarding. But I do think it's just something that teams don't practice in terms of guarding screening angles at that way. And, and just in general, I mean, not a lot of teams screen anymore. And so it's probably the time to start, you know, actually implementing some more motion actions into your offense because teams have no idea how to guard a flare screen, a pin down, get, get into some multiple screening actions. I mean, you can create a lot of good looks, but I do think, you know, that's just an odd angle that guys aren't used to guarding. And then, you know, you also, two guys aren't used to guarding down there. And, and for us, I mean, you know, we're going to try to just like with a ball screen where you can find a way to, you know, get certain guys on the ball with the ball screen to create advantages. I mean, same thing. I mean, trying to create switches to force their weaker defenders and guys that are not used to having a six, 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 seven guy back them down all game long and so that you can create a, not just from a three standpoint but you can create a lot of different 
advantages from that passing angle, but it's easier said than done. I mean, there's a lot of guys that, you know, can just go down there and score, you know, their through by football quarterbacks and pitchers don't make it. And it's usually because, you know, their fastball's too slow or they can't in football quarterback, his arm's not strong enough once he gets to the NFL level to see that window that opens up or anticipating that window open up and, and having the arm to get it there. And, you know, for us, and I think it goes back to ball screens as well as when you have a guy that can throw a 99 mile per hour fastball to force you into a longer closeout of rotation behind the ball with the corner skip pass or a wing diagonal, that's a huge advantage. And fortunately for me and a guy like Hunter Maldonado is that he can score down there, but he's also a guy that can throw a 99 mile per hour fastball and read your coverages and your rotations. Coming back to this real quick too, is shot selection for the person that's you know within the Barkley or the dribble down and you, know, you don't see a whole lot of fall away jumpers or bad shots from your two guys as well like they know where they're going they know the spots they're getting to and how much of that obviously is them having a feel but also you guys talking about spots that are most advantageous obviously for them to get to each time they both know that you know the responsibility that comes with the freedom that they have and the amount of possessions that the ball was in their hands last year and and even as we move forward to this year is that they know that I'm going to coach them on every shot and they know what you know what's been defined from me to them of what a good shot is and there'll be times where you know what yeah hey why did this but you know when the ball was in their hands as much as it was I mean if they have maybe one so-so shot you know an average shot I, I can live with that but they're both really smart players and they understand that what we're trying to do and ultimately what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a paint touch which if you're not going to double it's going to be really hard for you to keep them from getting into the paint and then from there now if you have to decide you want to double then they know what's going to happen and both those guys I mean Going into a game, we have a pretty good idea of what the other team's going to do after the game. I mean, the next day, I mean, with both those guys, I mean, we watch, you know, all their clips of what they're doing, what the other team was trying to do, and then just constantly just trying to evolve. But I think people want to know, like, well, how do those guys, what do you do to drill dribble downs? Well, it goes back to just five on five and those guys getting a lot of reps, not just based off of maybe us trying to run a set to get them to those dribble downs, but just within the flow of the offense, whether that's early offense, them getting a defensive rebound, getting to a dribble down, whether that's, you know, a fake handoff, a pop, whatever that might be, but by playing five on five and then getting those five on five reps, because it's easy to just to drill it, which, I mean, I don't know how you really drill it other than maybe just working on not dropping your shoulder and using your shoulder. I mean, that's the only thing you can really, or trying to create the depth that you need to kind of, really do some damage in terms of creating space but ultimately it just comes down to those reps of five on five and then that spacing behind the ball and those guys behind the ball really understanding where they need to be based off of where the ball's at and what their defender's trying to do you mentioned earlier when they get to the dribble downs i think when you're talking about the depth you know is mainly if that corner is open so when you're just free playing and it's not a set and you're talking to these guys is that what kind of your time? Hey, if you see the corners open, then you can look to do the dribble down. Are you telling them if the ball's in the middle, let's avoid dribble downs? I guess kind of how the floor balance or kind of what maybe some triggers are for them to say like, hey, now's a time where you can get to your dribble down. I think it's just in terms of what the game presents and what the flow is and what the situation is, whether that ball's being swung, you know, from the top to the wing and now you're on a you know two-man game on the side. And so how can we get to that from there? So there's a lot of different ways, you know, from that, you know, top to wing pass and whether or not the guy's the ball handler or the screener of how you want to get to it, getting to it early in early offense, you know, in that first six to eight seconds. I mean, I think that makes it really hard to get to the case of like your five man where maybe they're popping it, you know, popping to an empty side 
or, you know, the guy that's in a corner, whether, you know, if it's a pop situation or whatnot, knowing that, okay, that's a guy, an EK, who's a guy that, okay, if he pops it, I got to clear my man clear out to give him that empty side. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of different ways you can get to it. It's just a matter of them just seeing it, recognizing it. The other guys recognizing that just like, you know, in ball screen situations, you know, knowing whether a guy's a roll or a pop guy. And if a guy's a pop guy and, and understanding what the spacing situation is behind the ball and whether or not you have to you know, move the tag and not let your guy guard too. And understanding, you know, just those different concepts and space. And I think not just for those two guys, but also for everybody else on the floor to recognize that and also understanding what the attention that that brings, how they can create advantages for themselves. Okay, coach, moving along, our next one, the most effective ways that you like to attack a weak defender, is it to put them in the ball screen, to put him in the tag position, or to just go after him one-on-one and in space? Well, I mean, I think that's probably more personnel-based back at UNC when I had two guys two years in a row that were the best isolation scorers in the country. You know, for them was go one on one and you know create a switch and then allow those guys to one on one and play in space because you know at times where you know that ball screen you're also bringing an extra defender to the ball and so now I mean you create the switch and then now you're bringing you know somebody else to the ball on the ball screen and now they can double it they can trap it and now you're taking the ball out of your best player's hand and so you know it really probably depends on the personnel and then you know three years ago you know Jonah Radabaugh who was playing Euro League now for. Valencia, I mean, he was a guy that we would set a ball screen to get the weaker defender, knowing that he was a better in the ball screen than he was as a one-on-one player. So I would probably say based off of personnel tagging, now that would be sit, which, you know, based off of certain ball screen coverages, depending on, you know, on that double side where they want to, you know, who they're putting at the rim to be in that, you know, that low hole, you know, whether we can create a long closeout based off of that, you know, we have done that at times, but you're not going to beat a team over and over again by doing that. I would probably say based off of personnel, I mean, starting, so I would say one-on-one, you know, probably the sub ball screen would be the start based off of probably what we do more, but ultimately that's just based off of personnel. I mean, can I create a switch with the weaker defender to clear out space for a one-on-one situation that could be in space, that could be a one-on-one on a dribble down. But I do think the more you can put that weaker defender into a ball screen, if you're a team that ball screens a bunch, you know, that's why you're trying to hunt switches and not necessarily just because I think you better have some really good players, really good guards if you're just going to create switches and you're just going to allow them to go one-on-one all the time. So especially as teams have gotten better in terms of shrinking the floor and doing that. And I think that's the other thing when you play a lot of five-on-five and people want to know is, well, how do you attack switching? I know this, that I don't think anybody's ever won a game by running a bunch of screening actions and getting three pointers off of screens. And I know this, that, you know, teams have never beaten a team that switches a bunch by running plays to attack switches. And I think the way that you have to attack switches is that your guys have to understand it's not about standing and watching. It's about, can you create an overreaction through a little bit more ball movement, player movement, but also understanding too how you don't allow the defense to switch back, which it's amazing. Young guys, I mean, you'll set a ball screen and then they get to switch and they'll come right back and try to set a ball screen. It's like, listen, man, you just let them switch right back or understanding how to cut behind the ball or space behind the ball, not allowing the better teams, which ultimately you're trying to be, not let them switch to certain matchups. And so I think that's where when you do play five on five a bunch, especially nowadays where teams want to switch a lot more is just letting them understand that it's not, you know, you're not going to attack a switch unless you got really just go one-on-one. Like in the NBA, you can get a switch and create the space and let those guys go to work. I mean, college, there's not enough space. And so you got to understand how can we keep the ball movement 
we know we got the advantage, but you know, don't be in such a hurry to where now you just allow five defenders to sit there and watch you play. Coach, my follow-up is how you think about guard to guard screening or, you know, whoever that weak defender is and not being so tied to like we want to, you know, the traditional a big and a small in the screening action, but guard to guard screening and setting the screen, ghosting the screen, or, you know, just your willingness to maybe, hey, it's not something we do every day, but we're still going to run guard to guard screens because the matchups kind of are to our advantage. You know, in terms of the guard to guard screens, I think, you know, you watch all these teams now, they see the NBA, you know, these ghost screens, which in reality, I mean, if you're really prepared, I mean, they never, ever set the screen. So, I mean, I'm not sure why it creates any confusion. You know, you got to get my guy, you know, Ben McCollum from Northwest Missouri on to really talk about the guard to guard stuff. I'm sure anybody in the country does it better than he does at Northwest Missouri State in terms of creating some confusion and switches. But, you know, can you, you know, one, set that screen and put that defender who you're setting the screen with knowing that, if he doesn't switch it, that it's going to create an advantage or you're going to get downhill with it. You know, I think we saw that a lot where, you know, teams, they were so afraid to switch on a Maldonado knowing that was such a tough matchup that, all right, well, we're going to see whether or not you want to switch it or not. And if you don't, we're going to get the layup or now we're going to force you into a rotation. But I do think like double screens, like the double drags, double screens to where that second defender you know, where you're creating some confusion, whether or not you're setting that screen, whether you're slipping under it to where now you're creating that confusion with that guard, whether or not he wants to switch or not. You know, we would get to actually some triple screens to where if you wanted to start to go under with the first and not switch, we'd almost like I said a triple stagger to get the switch that we needed to get the guy that we wanted on Maldonado on the ball. I think the ghosting, I think, you know, the slipping out, I mean, you watch these teams do it. And I just think it's, they just do it because they see the NBA do it and they really don't understand how to Really, it's easy to do that as a play, but try guarding that when you're just running it within the you know the flow of your offense and just understanding too. And I'm not going to go too into depth with it, but in terms of just goes back to too when you're setting guard to guard screens. I mean, there's a synergy between the guy setting the screen, not setting the screen, reading the guy on the ball, whether or not that guy you know are the hips open or the hips not open. I mean, are they not switching it to where we want to set it? I mean, so not just with the post offensive player and the guard, but now that guard has to recognize and understand, okay, how are we going to create the advantage by actually just playing out of it? And I think that's the trick. I mean, if you can figure that out, you know, especially in this day and age where so many more teams are switching is how do you confuse the switch? And I think there's definitely better ways to do it than just teams running guys up from the basket or the block and just slipping out and setting a flare screen behind it when you really don't even have to help off the the guy coming off because he never even sets the screen. Coach, I'd love to ask, kind of zooming back out, when you're looking at attacking mismatches, weaker defenders, things like that, you and your staff say post-game, evaluating the effectiveness of that strategy for the future. And if there's analytics you look at, shot charts, uh, just a feel of the game. Yeah, I think it goes into just where each game, it's going to be different. You know, based off of just like ball screen coverages, you know, it's also in terms of switch coverages and whether or not they want to switch or not switch or how they're going to switch or now they don't want to switch. And so, you know, they're going to squeeze them and go under or they're going to, you know, quick, you know, one step show or blitz it and then go under. And so just understanding how you want to attack the switch coverages. There's a lot of different ways to switch, just like there's different ways to guard the ball screen. So can your guys understand how they're really switching. Are they switching and getting under? Are they lazy on the switch and you're able to stay below them and then you want to attack it that way? You know, there's a lot of different ways to attack the different ways that teams switch. And I think that's when you're going into a game, you know, as a coach for me, you know, when I'm sitting there watching the other team's defenses, 
not just what their ball screen coverage is and who those guys are and how we want to attack that, but when they're going to try to switch, whether that's the guard-on-guard screens to create a one-on-one situation or a dribble-down situation or to try to create some confusion to maybe open up a three or a drive back is that how are they really looking to switch? And I think, you know, just like there's weak defenders in terms of whether they can get up into a ball screen, you know, with their feet, you know, I think there's also each guy's kind of each their own in terms of how they switch. That's the other way that you manipulate space is just understanding that component. And it's not just, Hey, you switch, you switch. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to switch. How much of this type of stuff do you actually talk about with your players on the floor? I mean, how much information are you giving them about all these things you're thinking about when it comes to this stuff? Well, if I gave them all the information that I had in my head, I mean, it would be paralysis (laughs) by analysis, which is probably where I'm at right now as as a coach in the early season where you're trying to, you know, each year, as I always say, offensively, I mean, we were always going to evolve. I mean, we were in a film session yesterday and as I, hey, just remember, I mean, I could come in and you think we're doing this one thing, but then we're going to switch. And so I think, you know, offensively, we're always evolving based off of kind of our personnel and how teams are guarding. But, you know, the players, they need to know what they need to know. And you can't overload them, of course. Now there's certain guys like Hunter Maldonado and Graham E.K. I mean, they have an unbelievable, I mean, there's two of the smartest players I've ever coached. And so they can handle more where some of my other guys, they can't handle as much. So, I mean, it's on a case-to-case basis, but there's only a certain number of ways that you can space the ball behind a ball screen. There's only so many ways you can guard a ball screen, but knowing, okay, over the course of the season, you know, what you're going to see the most of and really trying to focus in on how to attack those coverages, then they just start to figure it out. And then from there, going into games, if you see something, if there's an adjustment or now maybe, hey, out of a timeout, you want to attack the coverage a certain way, then you can do that. But, you know, sometimes, I mean, and I'm as guilty as a lot of guys is that, you know, you might try to give them too much early on and it's just probably less is more. When you know a team is going to switch, are you thinking more to flatten the defense or stretch the defense? It depends on how they are switching and then kind of who we're trying to put in the switch. You know, there might be times where, yeah, you want to flatten it. Sometimes there might be times where you want to, you know, based off of how they're switching and whether you want to take advantage of the short roll, whether or not you want to take advantage of, you know, a short roll to an empty corner. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. We could go down a lot of different, you know, rabbit holes with it, but I just think it's kind of a case by case basis and a game by game basis. And you know, once you get the switch, I mean, based off of who you're trying to attack and how do you want to create the space to allow you to get that advantage once you've created the switch. Coach, you're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. Thanks for playing that game with us. That was fun. Thank you, guys. I appreciate that. That last <laughs> one was a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> Coach, we got one more question for you before we get you out of here. Thank you very much for your time today and the thoughts. This was a really fun conversation. No, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate what you guys do and especially your affinity for European basketball. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Coach. <laughs> coach, our last question. What's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think one, I think the ability to know that, you know, the people that I've worked for and worked under, I mean, they've had the greatest impact on me and very fortunate to have, have worked for not just very good basketball coaches, but even better human beings and understanding that you can do it the right way. You can win the right way. But also knowing too, if, you know, for guys like me who I was a good D2 player, but, you know, I was a guy that had to start from the bottom and 
you know, whether or not, you know, that's if guys have aspirations to be at the college level, whatever level you have to be to aspiration to be a good coach. I mean, you got to do more. You can't do less. And for me and, you know, this, the reputation maybe I have as an offensive guy or this, that or another is that, you know, the amount of time that I've spent, you know, watching film and investing in myself because ultimately it's just like the reps that you get as a player. I mean, the reps that you get as a coach. And, you know, so for me, you know, to talk about switching ball screens, whatever you want to talk about, the amount of time that I've spent, you know, watching film and realizing like all of us, just like players, we have a choice within the day of what you want to do with your time. And and for me, I, I love to watch film. I love to watch, I said, I love to watch European basketball and I love not watching the Euro league teams. I mean, I love watching the teams that do more with less because ultimately that's where I've been. I've been at places where you've had to do more with less. And that's why Juice and Tenerife was such a, you know, an admiration for me is that what they can do in the ACB league when you're competing against the the four big soccer clubs, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Valencia, Basconia, and, and the budgets that those teams have. And for them to do what they did. And then when you sit there and you watch them play and, and what they do is some of the things that we like to do or how we can get better is that, you know, you got to, invest the time. When you invest the time, you're not going to, for me, I can't go over to the Canary Islands and spend time with those guys if I don't go over there already knowing what they do. And I think a lot of times guys, and that's why I don't have any issue sharing. And sometimes people say, well, you share too much as well. I mean, I know what I know and I've spent the time to know, and it's easy on a podcast or a video to sit there or to see a play. Like everybody can post a million plays from Europe of all these cute plays, but if you really don't know what's going on and why they're doing it, you're going to run a bunch of plays that have really no impact on winning. And so for me to spend that time, it's allowed me to open up doors to a lot of different places just because of the investment I took in myself to learn the game and not just from watching the best teams and the best coaches, but also knowing that some of the best coaches are at the high school level, middle school level, not the highest levels of Europe. And it's allowed me to my players know that, you know, especially this day and age in college coaching where guys are going to leave in a heartbeat. And I don't blame guys for leaving, especially when they get to places and they realize that that coach doesn't know very much. And that's, you know, for my players, they know Graham E.K., Hunter Malnado know that I'm going to put them in a position to get better and, you know, in a position to be successful. And hopefully in the long run, that allows us to be better because I can keep those guys because they know that I know what the hell I'm doing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>